Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Famously characterised by The Observer as the best Tory Prime Minister we never had, today Chris Patton is the Chancellor of Oxford University. 25 years ago, he was the Governor of Hong Kong, responsible for returning the city from British to Chinese rule. Now he's published The Hong Kong Diaries, a first-hand account of his five years as Governor and of the negotiations with the Communist Party. He joined Channel 4 News Europe editor Matt Fry live on stage in London to share his insights from that time and reflect upon recent events in the city. I just want to start off by saying, maybe you would disagree with this description, that you, when you became governor of Hong Kong, you were the accidental governor, weren't you? It was not supposed to happen. Can you talk us through... Yeah, I will. I will. That. One, of, one of my youngest daughters, who was an actress, who was, who was uh, educated in, in Hong Kong, did all her secondary schooling, and is the best educated of my kids, actually, um, went to Cambridge, where she pretended to learn modern languages and actually acted. Um, she's given up now because she's married to an actor and she's become a child therapist. Anyway, she was saying the other day to me that all of us have one or two lines that we remember from Shakespeare or from poetry. And uh, she said that, that she thought the one that was most suitable for me was from As You Like It, when Duke Senior is overthrown by his uh, younger brother and uh, has to go into exile in the forest of Arden rather than being in court, lying under the trees and watching the deer. And he says at one point, sweet are the uses of adversity. And I've always thought of that, that I was bloody lucky that I lost my seat in, in Bath in 1992 in the election. And instead of, which John Major had intended to do, mm. instead of being made Chancellor of the Exchequer and having the opportunity of spending my life as Norman Lamont, um, <laughs> John, offered, John, John offered me several other things, including most attractively going to Hong Kong. And it's one of the happiest circumstances in my life. I was really grateful that, that my wife gave up her legal career to make it possible. But I really had a love affair with, with Hong Kong. It's one of the greatest places I've ever lived. I had a huge number of friends there. The public service, the people who worked for me in Hong Kong were so fantastic. And um, so sweet are the uses of adversity. And then again, <laughs> come the lockdown... Um, for coronavirus, wherever that came from, who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> my wife said to me, this, this is a chance for you to do something about those bloody papers in the cellar. Mm. Because I'd kept a diary in, the, in Hong Kong. It's the only time I've, I've ever done it. And I was always going to give them to the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And my wife said, don't you think you should look at them first? So that's how this happened. I looked at them. I edited them down from about four times that length with the help of one or two people from Penguin and an extraordinary device called Dragon, which um, enabled me to, to speak and it turned into, into words, on the, words on the page. But with, with some dramas, because I am to technology what um, Kim Jong-un is to nuclear weapons. It's, it's, um, <laughs> so I needed my family and wife and children and grandchildren to help me with that. Anyway, I was so, lucky. But there's a, there's a bit here, I think, in the first... A few pages where you describe having, you know, talked about the job before actually taking it up. You were at the airport heading to France and you bumped into David Owen, who had been mooted for the job in the past, and also Christopher Bland, who was chairman of the BBC, and John Burt, who was, I think, director general. And after being polite about your prospects of being governor of Hong Kong, they decided that it was far too boring and you shouldn't do There's it. There's nothing to do, they said. Well, you know, nothing left to do. I mean, it's all, you know, all, all been decided. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but um, I, I went there and there were, there were I suppose, th there are three elements which I, I hope are sort of intertwined in the diaries. The first was um, just loving being in Hong Kong and having so many good friends there. When we were leaving and I was being seen off onto Britannia, the Prince of Wales said to me as I was going up uh, on, on, on board, he said, did you play tennis with everyone in Hong Kong? <laughs> <laughs> So there was that aspect. There was then the being mayor of Hong Kong, uh, which was suddenly 
I'm, I'm in a community where I don't have to make difficult choices about, mm. about whether you spend more or, or tax more. You, in, in, in Hong Kong, you taxed less and spent more. It was a miracle. <laughs> I, if, I, if I'd been able to do that in British politics, God, <laughs> talk about Norman Lamont. Um, uh, anyway, and the third issue was, was um, coping with the extraordinary fact that Hong Kong was the only one of our colonies, really, which we weren't preparing for independence because we couldn't because mm. of the lease. So uh, for years, when Cho Enlai, for example, said to British ministers, you mustn't think about introducing democracy because people will think that Hong Kong is being prepared for independence like Singapore or Malaysia mm. and that that was never going to happen. But how did you see your job? Was it, a, was it burnishing the legacy of you know, British Empire? Here's something that you could do for your constituents, you know, not the constituents of Bath, but the constituents of Hong Kong, that you know, left them with a lasting legacy. Something good that the empire had left behind. Rule of law, freedom of speech, that kind of stuff. The institutions, the courts. Or was it about balancing that with getting on with China, making sure that we had a decent trading relationship with China? And there must have been a sort of real tension there between the foreign office and your own political instincts. I wonder how tricky that was. It was trickier the closer we got to 1997. And to be honest, it was tricky in some parts of the Foreign Office to begin with because there, were, there was a sort of clack of acolytes of, of Percy Craddock, who was my probably most prominent intellectual and diplomatic critic. To, Percy Craddock was a very, very clever man, intellectually hugely vain, um, but he had a sort of comet's tale of, of admirers and people who'd worked for him. And uh, I indicate in the diary something which Michael Sheridan writes more about in his book on Hong Kong, the relationship between Percy Craddock and the Chinese. Mm. But Percy Craddock had this fundamental view of, of China, which wasn't of the Chinese Communist Party. Sorry, we must, I must distinguish immediately between China and the Chinese Communist Party. Percy Craddock had this view, which was partly a reflection of the fact that he'd been in the British Embassy during the Cultural Revolution when it was burnt down by, by, the, uh, mm -hmm. by a mob. Um, he used to say, and he said it the first time we met, the Chinese leaders may be thuggish dictators, he said, but they are men of their word. Well, we know part of that is true. <laughs> and his, his, argument, his argument was always, you know, if you do a deal with them, they'll stick to it. He also, I think, in a way, this is a bit like Beijing um, uh, goons now. Um, he thought about Hong Kong, not about Hong Kongers. And uh, also thought, as some did in the Foreign Office, not just that kowtowing to China was the only way you could do business with them, something which is demonstrably not true. But he also thought that you shouldn't get the people of Hong Kong involved in deciding their own future and their, mm. and their own thing. I, I, I tell the story in there, which I'd, which I'd forgotten about until I was <laughs> locked down reading, of going to, a, to a, a mental hospital, which was in a terrible dilapidated condition in, uh, in the New Territories. And we were, I was very keen to, to rebuild it. The, the wards were in sort of Nissan huts outside the old building. And you walk down a sort of sentier, sort of alley, between these Nissan huts, and each one had, had a wire, barbed wire fence around it. And I'm walking down, and, and somebody is shaking the wire and calling out to me. And to the horror of, of the comet's tail behind me, uh, I wandered over to, uh, to the wire. And uh, it was a very Chinese guy, I suppose mid-40s, in a three-piece suit, who said to me, uh, Governor, he said, oh, Pang Ting Hong, he said, Pang Ting Hong. He said, um, could you answer me a couple of questions? So I said, yes. So he said, would you argue that Britain was the oldest democracy in the world? And I said, well, people, some people say that. So he said, and would you agree with me that China is the last great communist tyranny in the world? And reaching for my diplomatic speak, I said, well, I, I, I've, I've certainly heard people make that contention. <laughs> so he said, well, could you tell me then, he said, how it is that the oldest democracy in the world is handing over Hong Kong to the largest communist tyranny without ever asking the people of Hong Kong what they think. 
And that was the heart of the moral dilemma. Mm. And for people like, like Percy Craddock, it wasn't really an issue. This was real politic. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was the sort of thing the colonial office used to, mm. used to worry about. Um, but we had to have this big relationship with China, sort out the problems of the world, Great Britain, Britain playing a play part in the world. We didn't have any relationship with China that was as big as our responsibility for Hong Kong, mm. which when we left was 19%, 18-19% of, of China's GDP. So all that was going on in the background. And also the, the sort of... The, the sheer stupidity of thinking you could only do business with China if you never are, if you ever had an argument with them. And how long did it take you to really understand that the people of Hong Kong, you know, had a voice in this and wanted to be heard? I mean, was that not, you must have had that idea before you got on the plane. But when, yeah, you, when you got there, when did it really sink in that these were, you know, six and a half, seven million individuals who well, deserve to be heard? There was a one particular political point. And there was a more general point. The political point was this. My predecessor and his colleagues um, and the Foreign Office had done a secret deal with China about the establishment of the Court of Final Appeal, replacing the judicial um, work of the Privy Council. And they'd done this secretly with China and then produced, as they had to, the legislation in the Legislative Council. And the Legislative Council turned it down. Every, every bloody lawyer in, in uh, Hong Kong was against it, was shredded. And I thought to myself, we can't possibly do business like this. It's just impossible. Mm. And the Chinese were really, really angry about it, um, continually. Uh, we might come back to that later. So, so I knew that this wasn't a system that worked mm -hmm. and that I didn't want to be seen as Beijing's man in Hong Kong or even London's man in Hong Kong. I wanted to be seen as, as the representative of Hong Kong to London and the representative of Hong Kong to, to mm. Beijing as well. The second thing which always occurred to me was how bloody patronising some people were at Hong Kong. You know, those, those um, people usually with a British passport in their back pocket, very often businessmen who would say, of course, nobody's here interested in mm. anything except making money. The idea that they're interested in politics is absolutely rubbish. So we, we, we expanded, for example, education. We expanded higher education. People were seeing what was happening in Taiwan mm. and South Korea and elsewhere in Asia. We were encouraging them to, to read all the classics about open societies mm. and democracy and political development and then saying, but they're not interested in politics mm. at all. And you know better than I do how wonderfully argumentative yeah, of people are. In no, we heard that attitude all the time. They're, they're only interested in the money, they're not in politics, which is blatant nonsense. And the only people who ever told me that were basically you know, British businessmen, and, and some of whom had been there for a very long time and should have known better, um, and you know, Chinese officials. And my brother's ex-father-in-law, who absolutely, who was, who was a Brit, worked for the Shanghai Bank, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and he hated you, Chris, I'm sorry yeah, to say. Yeah, I'm sure there's some of them. That's not, that's not the reason why they got divorced, I have to say, but, <laughs> but close. So... No, I, rem I, remember, I remember one, one old buffer um, from the Surrey Hills or, or um, the Highlands um, who'd been in Hong Kong f for years at a lunch that I was at in the Hong Kong club denouncing Martin Lee. Mm. And, he, and he said to me, why don't you tell him to go back to China where he belongs? But Martin Lee, I mean, the story of Martin Lee is extraordinary because he's, I don't know if he's still in jail, I think he served, he was given 10 months last year, is that right? Yeah, and, and Margaret Ong. But he was always accusing the British government at the time of selling Hong Kong down the river for trade deals. Yeah. Yeah. Was any of that true? Um, well, there were some people who would have liked to have, started mm. <laughs> to have got trade deals for, for um, selling the place down the river, but... What was true was that there was a strong feeling that if you didn't get this or that contract in China, it was because of the bloody governor of Hong Kong, rather than because you weren't providing the Chinese with what they wanted at a price they thought was reasonable. Mm. Um, and if you look at the figures, I mean, I put, I put them somewhere. I think I put them in an earlier book I wrote about, um, about Asia and Hong Kong and, and the West called East and West, which is um, now... 
I think it's not Romanian, because I was signing some the other day, but I wrote it a long time ago, and I gave the figures in there, which showed that under my predecessor, not because of him, none of this is post hoc, propter hoc, as mm. we would say at Oxford, um, in, under my predecessor, where there was every attempt made to get on with China and not to have arguments, mm. our exports to China actually declined. Under the, and, under the triple violator, me, the... <laughs> Uh, the exports to China went up faster than any other OECD country. Mm. So the only thing you, I thought you could actually take from that was there wasn't actually a mechanistic relation mm. between um, doing what China told you to do and um, then getting trade deals. But still, people still, people still behave as though that was true. I'm hoping that your lavender, your wife calls you the triple violator when you don't do the washing up. Uh, of, of course, um, quadruple. Quadru how many days in the week are there? So, <laughs> exactly. um, uh, no, she was very good. There was one. Um, I shouldn't perhaps say this, but there was one thing they called me, which um, involved some of President Clinton's alleged practices, um, and they used to call, call. They used to talk about me in relation to those practices, and Lavender had to explain to me what it was all about. Mm. Okay. <laughs> What was your measure? How did you define to yourself your measure of success, what you wanted to achieve when you got there? Well, what I wanted to achieve was to ensure that, con that Hong Kong continued to be stable economically, that we did made some progress in reducing the, the undoubted social and economic inequities in, in Hong Kong, that we kept the public on side as much as possible, and that we managed to create a situation in which people would think that even if we hadn't done brilliantly, that we'd sort of done our best over the years. M Max Hastings, who's a, who's a great luncher and, and, and wonderful at, at historical similarities, said when I had lunch with him before I went to Hong Kong that he thought it was 50-50 whether we, I would leave in Britannia or in a helicopter from the roof of government house. <laughs> and uh, so I always had that, that in my mind. And in fact, um, I was delighted. We, we left with people cheering us and saying thank you rather than, rather than booing and saying how pleased they were we were going. So there was a sort of last night of the Poms mm. feeling about it, as Barry Hum Humphreys would have put it. Um, and uh, um, I, th I think people understood at the end that we'd... We hadn't made too bad a fist of it. Nobody, nobody, nobody would try to justify the way we'd acquired Hong Kong. It was, it was appalling. Um, but over the years, we had given... It's one of the stupid things about, about um, this administration which, which this, in Beijing, which we're supposed to admire as, as brilliant. This, this refusal to accept that history is anything other than the, than the narrative which the party constructs. It's called historical nihilism. And they've decided in the, new, in the textbooks, which kids are having imposed on them from the age of six, mm. they've decided that Hong Kong was never a colony. Um, it was only, it was an occupied territory. Okay. So leave aside what um, Jiang Zemin said um, when he, he came in 1997 about um, uh, resumption of sovereignty and so leave all that one on one side. Occupied territory. Occupied by whom? occupied overwhelmingly by people who were refugees from communism on the mainland, mm. who, like Jimmy Lai, stowed away to get to Hong Kong, who swam through the water, who clambered over razor wire to get to where? A British colony. And I think it's, um, it's surprising that, um, that today's um, communist rulers in, in, uh, in Hong Kong don't actually see that people may actually make that connection. So that it's, it's absurd to think, if you're a Hong Konger, that you can only love China if you love the Communist Party. It's a sort of, it's a sort of example of, of almost religious consubstantiality. You've got to love communism to show that you love, the, love, love China. It's absurd. The people who work for me, people like Anson Chan, mm. Michael Z, who died a few weeks ago, was a wonderful public servant. They were... Chinese, they were great Chinese, they were great Chinese patriots, but they didn't like the Communist Party. 
Well, you know, we're seeing a similar kind of confusion in Ukraine at the moment amongst ethnic Russians yeah. who, who are culturally Russian, like the president. They speak Russian, they read Russian literature, they don't want to be run by Vladimir Putin. Sure. Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just talk us through, because you know, I remember very well the night of the handover. We, we I then worked for the BBC, we prepared for it for, for weeks. In fact, we, we had built this studio in the, I think it was called the Arts Academy. And then, much to our horror, a skyscraper went up like a souffle, that we, blocking the view entirely. It was, it was absolutely horrific. And then we, sort of, we found a way around it. But it, was, it rained a lot. The rain got worse and worse. And I still remember the raindrops bouncing off Prince Charles's hat. Just tell us, and you describe it wonderfully in the book, in your diaries, how the froideur of the meeting between you, know, you and Tony Blair and uh, um, Robin Cook, I guess, and then on the Chinese side, you know, Jiang Zemin, amongst others. And there was not a lot of love lost between the two, and it was all rather perfunctory. Tell yeah, us there had been literally months of negotiations about the exact details of the handover. But the, the, the heroes in our joint liaison group um, diplomatic team had had to put up with the most sort of Lewis Carroll-like um, arguments from, uh, from the Chinese side. There were some serious ones, which was the Chinese attempts to send thousands of the garrison into Hong Kong mm. before we withdrew. Um, but there were, there were others, ridiculous ones about who should come into which room before whom, I mean, all that sort of mm. stuff. So this had gone on for, for months, and we, we, we had a bottom line, and we just stuck to it, and eventually things didn't work out too badly, and in particular in relation to the, to the press, who, who weren't cornered or, or kept, kept at a distance. So when it comes to the point... We'd agreed that the that, um, Prince of Wales and Jiang Zemin would enter a room from different doors at exactly the same moment with their entourages. So I think it was five aside or six aside. So they come in and a lot of bowing and ah and handshakes, and we sit opposite one another. And uh, the Prince of Wales, to do him credit, gives extempore a very good little speech about. One country, two systems, and about uh, the joint declaration and the agreement between the two sides. Um, the Chinese response uh, is based on something they'd heard Robin Cook say that we wanted Hong Kong to be seen as um, a bridge, not an obstacle, something like that. Mm. So that that is said in response. And Tony Blair is whispering to me and saying, "Do you think I should say something next?" And I said, "Yes, sure." And he goes ahead and says something very intelligent about the relationship mm-hmm. between Britain and China. And then the Chinese side get up to leave. So we've been through all these ridiculous negotiations just for a, a, what Ernest Bevan used to call clitches to be exchanged mm. from, from, from both sides. And then we, we then went, went on, on with the feast and we had the, the marching and one or two ill-advised Brits went to the, the swearing-in of the new alleged legislators in, the, in LegCo. Mm. But otherwise, what, what really struck me was you went through this crazy pantomime with officials who were claiming to have the mandate of heaven and, and to be um, the exemplars of the most civilized way of doing business. No way. But there was a lot of show and tell that night, wasn't there? I remember standing on the border watching, four, was it 4,000 PLA troops that came across the border? Yeah. Standing like, like terracotta warriors in the back of trucks and, and cheered by a few 
you know, very yeah, enthusiastic, um, yeah. either, you know, Hong Kongers who wanted to curry favor, or perhaps they thought it was the right thing, or maybe they were, yeah. I don't know. But it was a very, it was a chilling sight, I have to say. Yeah, and, and I, there were some people, I never really had this, this worry myself, who thought, who, who thought in terms of the possibilities of a Tiananmen uh, in mm. uh, Hong Kong. I never thought that myself. I, I didn't think the Chinese could be that stupid. But um, of course they were uh, in, in killing their own people in Tiananmen over those, over those years ago. And it's another example of, the, of rewriting history. One of the first things they've done in, in Hong Kong is to stop the annual vigil. Mm. Vigils take place all over the world. There was one here, um, a big meeting in Parliament Square. Even last year, there were police taking photographs of people going in and out of Catholic masses um, on, the, uh, on the 4th of June to remember the martyrs. Mm. Um, they closed the, the Tiananmen Museum. This has all happened recently. This has all happened yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they took down the, 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 sure. the, the statues and so on. And it's all this, this assumption that you can, you don't bury the scholars anymore, but you mm. bury the results of their, of their scholarship. You can't rewrite the past like, like that. I mean, it, sooner or later, people remember um, what actually happened. I, w- I want to talk about what's happened to Hong Kong in the last few years, because it's incredibly important. And I... You know, I think we both agree that Hong Kong is a sort of, for want of a better expression, a canary in the mine. You know, it's where the relationship between us, the West, and China is tested more than anywhere yeah. else. But just before that, when you left on the Royal Yacht Britannia that night, and it was incredibly emotional, must have been unbelievably emotional for you, but it was emotional for us being there. And I remember that, you know, the weather was terrible, then you described wonderfully how the next day or the day after, as you approached the Bay of Manila, the weather had improved and there were dolphins and kingfishers following the boat, you know, ordered obviously by the government of the day, you know. <laughs> Those days dolphins were still very obedient creatures. Um, but did you think then that one country and two systems would work and would last for as long as it was supposed to last? Or did you have serious doubts at the time? I hoped it would last. I never believed, as um, Milton Friedman did, that the whole idea of one country, two systems was oxymoronic, that you couldn't have um, a free society with um, market economy and rule of law inside a sovereign Chinese mm. communist state. I always thought it was, it was possible that the Chinese would be so aware of the disadvantages if they crushed Hong Kong that they would allow it to continue more or less as it was and that there was, might even be a chance of the way Hong Kong did things permeating bits of Chinese society. And to some extent, given how uh, what happened in the ten or a dozen years um, afterwards, that wasn't an unrealistic prospect under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, though one of the people who's now in prison um, waiting for a trial, Claudia Mo, yeah. wrote at the time about her some of her anxieties about how China was interfering more and more. The other thing I, I've, I thought, I'd, I never really believed in the idea that there was a sort of umbilical cord between uh, economic progress and political change. Mm. I, thought it was, I thought it was likely that there would be some political change in time, but I, thought, I didn't think it was, it was mechanistic. But that was the assumption amongst many Western leaders. Yeah, it was, and, and it went on and on. I mean, um, I, I, I mentioned later... Tony Blair, after, we'd, after the Chinese communist regime had signed the WTO agreement, Tony Blair saying um, that China's road to democracy is now unstoppable. What happened? Um, so, but I did, I also, there's one other thought I had, that we'd had to negotiate with the Chinese about every little bit, every pinhead, um, involved in the not over, not only over the airport but everything, mm. and I thought, could they possibly spend all that energy and effort negotiating on all these all these tiny details and then simply water walk away from them? Mm. It seemed to me that it was that was unlikely to happen. So, so I hoped that it would go well, and to some extent, it didn't go too badly for a bit. But um, my surprise initially wasn't anything that happened between Beijing and Hong Kong. My surprise initially 
was the way the rest of the world looked at mm. what was happening. I mean, the extent to which Hong Kong was seen as a sort of, as an example of a process which so many European countries had gone through with decolonization. Mm. I remember, and the way I, they identified with us, I've, I've, I've told before, I think, the story about, I've got a house in France and, and going there in order to avoid whiskey and soda, having to go into, uh, uh, into kennels here because of, quote, rabies, allegedly. I remember we were, I was on a walk and stopped by an old French farmer who said, where did I come from? And I told him uh, about the village we lived in three or four miles away. And he said, have you met the, have you met the great man who's moved into your village? And so I said, uh, very modestly, I said, um, no, I said, uh, who's that? Oh, he said, he's a very great man. Uh, he, was, uh, he did a great job in, in uh, Asia. He was governor of Saigon. <laughs> and, I love it. Very good. And you know, for the French, there was an, there was there was an empire. And did you have did you have an empire as well, Britain? No, that's no, really. Exactly. Very good. The um, just how often did you write this diary? By the way, did you do something every night or every no, morning? For, for what was the, your routine? I tell you exactly what the routine was, and I tell you the bit that worked best. For the first maybe three years, three and a half years, um, I used to dictate every Saturday or Sunday morning into a recorder with the help of my weekly diary mm. um, and then send these, these tapes back to my two um, former PAs in London and they would type them up. The last year and a half or so, I wrote in a hard um, uh, exercise book, lined exercise book, every night. And I did that because I thought I was just missing some of the humour of what was happening. And it was partly uh, triggered by a visit by Michael Heseltine, who's a man I much admire and like. Mm. He's a friend of mine. But the weekend was so funny that I thought I had to write that down. And it was partly funny because by that stage, Michael, who's a terrific swashbuckling political figure, um, flashbang wallop mm. and terrific, gets things done. He's an argument for having politicians. He's on, the, he's on the right side of most uh, arguments. He wasn't entirely on the right side on China, but that's another matter. But he came, and he was trapped by that stage. He was quite near the, uh, the end of the major government. He was travelling on fairly light briefing. Uh, and one country, two systems, at his initial press conference, turned into one nation, two states, which <laughs> wasn't entirely what they'd, what they'd had in mind. And there were one or two other variants of that. And I was waiting, we'd, we'd, we'd had some disagreements, but never ever fell out. He's one of those people who's, who's, who's demonstrably loyal when there's a collective decision. And there always was, and it was always, in, I'm pleased to say, eventually even with Michael Howard in my, in my, um, uh, my favour. Anyway, I'm waiting for him to say to me during the course of the weekend that um, he doesn't think I've been handling it all entirely well and it's having an effect on British business. Nothing happens. So on the Saturday night before he's going on the Sunday, Michael says to me, um, Chris, we must have a private word before, before I and go to And you thought, uh-oh. I thought, uh-oh. So the following morning, he says, can we go outside and, and, and just have a word together? So we walk out onto the balcony where I've got lots of um, shrubs, which I'd borrowed from a Buddhist monastery. And uh, Michael says, look, you're not to take this personally. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're friends and I don't want you to think badly of me when I say this. But you're not pruning the bonsais properly. <laughs> That's harsh. How can you ever recover from that? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, the, um... so, then, so then I was writing every day and I think, it's, I think to anybody else who's thinking of a diary, you, you don't think at the end of the day you'll, you'll, um, you'll want to do it. But if you're... If you take alcohol, it's quite helpful because, because it tends to discourage you from taking too much alcohol at dinner right. and then writing three or four hundred words, which I was doing every day. So That's a lot. Maybe it's fun not to write, isn't it? No, sometimes five, yeah. six hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at your illustrious career, which, of course, you know, you're, still, you're still Chancellor of Oxford University, but you were chairman of the Tory party, you were governor of Hong Kong, um, you were EU commissioner in Brussels... I mean, every institution that you have run or been part of, to some extent, has gone tits up, hasn't it? Um, 
and I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming you, Chris, but I'm just saying... No, don't give me that look. No. <laughs> you know, Oxford is not... That, that, that has, Oxford's and yeah, we've, right. left, we've left the EU, the, the BBC... Oxford's the best university in the world. Yeah. Doing incredibly but, well. But, um, but how does that, when you look back at your careers, because there are many of them... Well, the, you could have gone further, because the thing, the most difficult job I've ever had, and the one I'm, in some respects, most proud of, because it was so difficult was to reorganise the police service in Northern Ireland after yes, the Good Friday yeah. Agreement. And that has worked so far, though now the, the uh, Good Friday Agreement, I think, is, is um, threatened by the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's called. I won't, I won't go into details about that this evening. Um, but uh, there's a sort of casual disregard for, mm. for what was basic to the Good Friday Agreement. But it is true that, that um, I haven't, on the whole taken on um, easy assignments, as they say. <laughs> I remember when I, was, when I was doing the job in Northern Ireland, Norman Tebbit saying to people uh, when, when they asked why I'd done it, he said he shouldn't have done it because it's, it's helpful to the Labour government that he's doing it. And then saying, of course, he's, he's only doing it for the money. The millions. The, the, the per diem or whatever it was, yeah. Just to get, we're going to open up the questions in a minute, but just to get back to China... Is the big thing that's happened, that's really shafted Hong Kong in so many ways in the last few years, the figure of Jiang Zemin, is that the big thing? Or the fig- the even big- if someone else had been in, in that job, Xi it would have yeah. the, big, the big thing that's happened, and the thing which, in a way... Sorry, not um, Xi Jinping. Yeah, yeah, in a way, the, the thing which makes some of what we discuss about our exercise of responsibilities up to 1997... Um, does, it's not, they're not entirely irrelevant, but uh, irrelevant, I mean, but we weren't to know that the Chinese Communist Party, having s- moved in a direction in which things were sort of loosening up a bit, um, would then um, be run from t- 2012, 2013, by somebody who wanted to go back to iron control mm. over every aspect of society. And it was a surprise to people because that he, he turned out to be a, 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 such a fan of, of Mao um, because his father was, was, was shut away by, mm. by Mao and only released by Deng Xiaoping and was one of, one of Deng Xiaoping's leading reformers. So it's, a, it's rather a surprise that he turned out as he has. But I think, I think to be frank, there was one um, immediate reason and three underlying reasons. The immediate reason was I'm convinced that the... Chinese leadership was spooked by Bo Xilai, um, the, the Chinese leader, you'll remember, whose, whose wife was um, thought guilty of murdering a British businessman. Mm. And I think he, with the then head of, the, of security, Yeo Yang Khan, and, and, and uh, energy, I think tried to muscle his way into the past party leadership, and I think that really worried them. Then there were three bigger reasons, I think. First of all, I think China became extremely worried about globalization and its implications for mm. China. Secondly, worried Even though about, it had benefited enormously from Absolutely. Secondly, worried about urbanization. And thirdly, uh, worried about um, environmental issues with uh, you know, all the water in the south and mm. most of the need in the north. And uh, I, I think we, what we shouldn't be today, we certainly shouldn't be scared of Russia is a great power. It has a, a, a monstrous, um, paranoid liar running it. But, you know, it's a declining country in every sense. If, if, you, can ever, if you can ever think of anything apart from the energy, which we've, which we've been rather greedy about, that anybody buys... I mean, how many people have got anything in their home made in Russia except vodka... And dolls. And, and dolls, hmm. yeah. Um, or may, maybe the odd copy of, of uh, War and Peace, but... Um, or if, or if they're more sensible, life and fate. So <laughs> China, on the other hand, China is a big... So I think we're in a period of post-peak Putin, which is difficult to handle. I also think we are in a period of post-peak China, because China faces... Um, you know, we've got enough problems, but China faces huge economic problems, mm. all the ones that were identified by Hu Jintao. Sorry, by, when, by his prime minister, Wen Jiabo. Yeah. The, the four uns, he called them, um, unstable, unsustainable, and so on. 
The indebtedness in China is probably uh, 300% of GDP. Um, George Magnus, who writes extraordinarily well about the Chinese economy, was arguing last week that the indebtedness in local government in China, which is where any boost for the economy would need to come from, is twice the size of the German, eco of the German economy. Secondly, uh, I think there are really big problems of, of demography, not just the aging population, not just the, um, the low fertility rate, but the thing which always shocks me most, you, you look it up, the gender imbalance getting bigger and bigger mm, yeah. as you go down the ages. So from 10 to 20, the imbalance between boys and girls is nearly 20%. I mean, Which is it's, astonishing. it's yeah. absolutely astonishing. Yeah. You think what the implications are for, for the future. So I think facing problems like that, as well as the environmental issue which I mentioned, I, I think um, uh, Xi Jinping faces really, really, or China faces really big problems. And I would love to have a relationship with them in which we weren't containing them, but trying to work with them to deal with problems which are, which are planetary. But it's very difficult working with them if they always break their agreements with you. I mean, the thing that really... I remember I was in Beijing the night they got the Beijing Olympics in 2000, and there were armoured vehicles on the streets. And I said, why would you put armoured vehicles on the streets? You know, this is a happy occasion. This is a great patriotic milestone for Beijing. And one of our fixers, Chinese student who was working with us, said, because this government is more afraid of its own people than yeah. it is of anyone else. And I think that is still... The case, you know. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons I think why, why they've been so tough on Hong Kong is because at the beginning of Xi Jinping's rule, they issued a series of instructions which are called in a rather Orwellian way, communique number nine, <laughs> um, which said the party carders and government carders had to fight an intense struggle against all the aspects of, uh, as it were, a liberal democracy. And they, they list them all. Freedom of speech, um, rule of law, separation of powers, and so on. And you read them all and you realise it's a description of Hong Kong. I'm not saying mm. Hong Kong was the only thing that worried them, but if they're worried about those things, then they look at Hong yeah. Kong and they see them all manifested. Yeah. But also the way that they introduced the national security law under the cover of COVID. They've done a lot of things under the cover of COVID. And you wonder to what extent they've really seen COVID, the zero COVID policy, not just as a public health issue that needs some extreme draconian measures, but as a kind of glimpse of how they want to run the country. Well, if they do, it certainly screws the economy. Yeah. I mean, the, the economy is doing particularly badly now, and it's almost certain that um, we're going to be talking about a far lower um, growth rate in the future in China because of this. Um, the economy is suffering among other things, from the zero COVID policy mm. and the impact on the economy and the impact on, on, on society as a whole and their relationship with Russia over Ukraine. I mean, they, they, they seem increasingly to the rest of the world like accomplices. And the surprising thing you have to, you have to consider, the Economist wrote a very interesting piece about this the other day, they should know a lot about Ukraine. Mm. Huawei is all over Ukraine. Yeah. It's one of the countries in the Belt and Roads Initiative, though I imagine most of that infrastructure is now being destroyed by Russian artillery. Um, so they must but get a lot of intelligence from Hong Kong, but from Ukraine, but their inability to analyze it, or Xi Jinping's uh, inability to, to understand what, mess, what the but, messages are. But for all those things, whether it's the way they've treated Hong Kong in the last you know, two years, whether it's the zero COVID policy, whether it's an excessive flirtation with Vladimir Putin, it flies in the face of the assumption that we all made in the past that whatever you say about Beijing, they are ruthlessly pragmatic. This doesn't sound like pragmatic policy. No, and, and it certainly screws any idea that the, this is a, a wiser system of government than any other around the world. I mean, we are making some horrible errors, not least in the United States and, and Europe, about, about the nature of democracy. I mean, don't ask me about the 6th of January last year or the Republican mm. Party. We make terrible errors. But there is inherent strength in, in, uh, uh, in democracies. The which corrective which mechanism. They're, which, which they're, exactly, yeah. which, they're, which they're terrified of. And we have a, 
We have a real weakness, I think, which was something which was mentioned again and again by um, the feistiest journalist I've ever known, Jonathan Mirsky. I mean, he made feisty seem like such an understatement. I've never known anybody to storm out of as many dinner parties as, mm. as Jonathan because somebody had said something which he thought was outlandish or, or immoral. Um, he was a great journalist and wonderfully impossible. And he covered, he was the observer's man in, in Beijing at the time. He was of in Tiananmen Square. He was Tiananmen Square. Shingles Absolutely. As a result. Yeah. He got, um, he, was, he was helped to escape by the man who's now, I think, the chief executive of News International, Robert Thompson, mm. Mm. Um, with a broken arm or a, sh- or a shattered arm and five teeth missing. But the, the thing that I think most reinforced his feelings about calling out wickedness, he's standing with a group of students uh, on the fringes of Tiananmen Square, and they all hear the sound of, of, of rifles, guns going off. And the kid sitting next to him says to him, don't worry, Grandpa, he says, um, uh, they're using plastic bullets, rubber bullets. At which point this kid drops dead at Mirsky's feet with a red hole in his forehead. And Mirsky always, always, always thought we should call out behavior which is wicked. And it's not some clever diplomatic um, example of, of... of real politic not mm. to do so. What, Put- what Putin is doing in Ukraine is wicked, and we should say so. What is happening in Xinjiang is wicked, and we should say so. What is happening in Hong Kong is almost as wicked, and we should say so. And I think one, is one thing which is true of all tyrants is they hate being put on the spot. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm entirely in favor of trying to find ways in which we can work with China, provided they stick to the rules. I'm not in favor of containing China, but Gerald Siegel, Siegel used to say we should constrain China mm. when it's behaving badly, and, and I, I, I think we should. Um, and uh, I think that means liberal democracies working together and standing up for one another, as we haven't many, many times in the past. But then you get, you know, then business intervenes. I remember the day after the national security law was imposed in Hong Kong, HSBC took out a full-page ad in the South China Morning Post congratulating the government of Beijing. I mean, okay, enough said yeah, about I, that. I, but but there, there, is one, there is one thing to remember about, about a lot of companies, um, Western companies in, in Hong Kong. The one people, the one group they don't think about are the people who work for them. Yeah. The people who are running HSBC all have foreign passports. Yeah. You think, any of, you think many of their till clerks have, have, have foreign passports? And every one of, I think I'm right in saying that every one of my successors, as, as it were, chief executive in Hong Kong, has either themselves or, their mem- or members of their family had foreign passports. Yeah. The, the present guy, the, the police cop, the police guy, his wife and two children have British passports. The last one, Carrie Lam, her husband and two sons have foreign passports. Now I'm not, I'm not against them, you know, good for them. It doesn't show terrific confidence in the future of, of Hong Kong <laughs> under communism. But, ne- but nevertheless, uh, you know, good for them. They can, they, can, they can see a good thing when it comes along. But it's, it's, it's one of the great paradoxes of history. Although the government is being good now by, about increasing B&O passports in order that, that uh, younger people get them as, as well. But one of the paradoxes is that, is, that, is that people who have British passports or, or whose own kids have British passports have been persecuting kids who don't. And I think that's something that mm. should uh, bother us all. Do you think that this government here, and I know you're not a massive fan um, of it, and we might get onto that later, but this government here did the right thing by offering passports? Absolutely. And it used to Should be... Should they have done it earlier? Probably... But it's interesting that when I was governor, it was a hugely big issue and a yeah. difficult issue. Uh, in the event, I don't think there has been, there's hardly been a single political tremor about it, which is, which is I think, a tribute to Hong Kong and Hong Kongers themselves and a recognition both of their courage and bravery and what they stand for and of what they contribute mm. to society. I mean, in the last few weeks, two... Uh, stories which must be typical 
um, uh, for, for a lot of us, with uh, over 100,000 Hong Kongers coming to live here and going to other countries as well. But the, I went back to my old school um, to give a prize to the sixth form, and the new uh, chemistry teacher was just from Hong Kong, had come mm. over with his family. Um, I'm in the street in, in Oxford a couple of weeks ago, and there's a, there's a, a couple, middle-aged couple there with a, with a son who's about 25, 26, I suppose. Um, he, was, he was there to be interviewed for a job with the medical, um, mm. with the health authority in, in Oxford, a young doctor. We're hugely bene- benefiting, and Hong Kong is, is, is losing with, the, with these very talented people um, coming to or going to live in exile. They'd love to stay in Hong Kong, but they, mm. they can't see a decent future for themselves there. Just a quick one last one for me, and then we'll open it up. The, one of the whole points of One Country, Two Systems was to kind of make Hong Kong, or the Hong Kong arrangement, attractive to Taiwan. Obviously, if you're in Taiwan watching events in Hong Kong, you might be otherwise persuaded of yeah. the attractiveness of this opposition. How worried are you that Taiwan will become the real flashpoint between the West and China? Well, what's interesting <clears throat> is, is that people who know China much better than me and people who know about the military balance much better than I do take that issue far more seriously than I've ever known in the past. I still find it difficult to believe that um, this Chinese communist leadership could be so foolish. But we um, know that he wants to do it. I mean, Xi Jinping is... Yeah, well, he, he, he spent years, he spent years looking over the water yeah. because the province he was working in was yeah. sort of opposite. So it, probably the only thing he really knows about very much is, is, is Taiwan. But, you know, there's, what is it, is it 100 kilometers or miles of, of water between the mainland mm. and... There are very few um, beaches you can land on. Yeah. There are mountains. And there is the example, there is the example of, of uh, Ukraine. Which we must know, be putting them how, off. Yeah. We know, we know how, how much they have. How much they have. Um, but, but if everything else is lost, you can imagine circumstances in which a, a communist leadership would see an appeal to that grievance-soaked nationalism mm. being a way in which they could hold on to power. So when things go wrong, zero COVID, economy, you know, China will probably go into recession in the next quarter because of the zero COVID policy, you know, maybe another trade war with America, things going wrong uh, in, with their new best buddies in, in Russia. How likely is it, do you think, that some kind of military attempt on Taiwan will be used as a nationalist distraction from all the domestic woes? Well, it's less improbable than it was. Right. But I still think that they must, they must surely be smart enough to know just how appallingly damaging it would be. It would wreck their economy, wreck their relationship with the rest of the world. I think it would be um, a, an act of the most supreme folly. Okay, questions from the audience. If there was one thing that you could change that you did, one thing you would have done differently, what would that be? I wouldn't have spent so long negotiating with China about the electoral arrangements. We went, in, in my diaries, the section on this is called Round and Round the Mulberry Bush. I mean, we were just being strung along. And it wasn't until we made clear that we were going to go ahead, that we had a bottom line and we were going to go ahead regardless, that, that, that we actually um, made any progress. So I think I, I listened too much to people who said, well, you've got to show that you're willing to go the extra mile, and we went the extra mm. mile, and then we went... And they've scrapped it anyway, an extra, haven't they? And then we went an extra mile, and they scrapped it anyway. Yeah. So I think that was probably um, an error. Uh, uh, um, something that I didn't do correctly, but I didn't think I could do, was to totally reform the housing situation in Hong Kong. Probably my most distinguished predecessor was Murray McLehose, who was governor of... I didn't believe in democracy, but... Um, and indeed took exception when I went as a young backbencher to Hong Kong and then wrote a piece um, in The Guardian saying that, um, you know, Hong Kong should start with democracy and local government and Murray McLehose was having none of that. But he was, by instinct, a socialist in economic and social policy. And with with the huge increase of refugees coming in from mainland China, he began that huge public housing program. And I think it would have been better. I mean, he, he, he took half of what Singapore were doing as an example and didn't do the, the really clever bit that Singapore was doing, which was to relate housing and payment of rental to pensions. It, mm. was, a, it was a brilliant thing. But by the time I was there with five years to go, people argued 
fairly convincingly, first of all, that if we took too radical steps on housing, it was in danger of completely screwing the, the market and the Hang Seng Index, which wouldn't have been very good. And secondly, it was pointed out to me, if there was one thing that people dislike more than the prices for property going up, it was prices for property coming down. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so I wish I'd been able... I mean, if there hadn't been Not a... Not just there, by the way. <laughs> no, I know. If there hadn't been a 1997, and oh. I think that would have been a big priority. Okay. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Hi, Chris. Um, how long do you think Hong Kong will finally become a true Chinese city, by which I mean they will block or censor internet access, and all Western news sites and social media are blocked, as in the mainland right now? I think that it will be quite some time, because there is in Hong Kong, um, I think it's the only place in China of which this is true, there is a real sense of citizenship. And there is the Cantonese language, which I guess Beijing will also try to stamp out. And a real Cantonese culture and sense of humour and awareness of what it is and what it's been for, the, for not only people who live there, but for the rest of the world. One thing, one thing which Hong Kong has been in a way, during these years of uh, communist rule in the rest of China, is China's memory palace. Mm. All sorts of things which are important for China as a whole have been possible because of Hong Kong. Publishing books, making films, and so on. And I think that will endure. Uh, And it seems to me unlikely that the communist way of doing things is going to completely expunge, wipe out any of the uh, regional variations in in the rest of China, or that it will survive um, against some of the consequences of technology and the consequences of people with an understanding of that there are better ways of of running themselves. Hi, uh, I'm I'm from Hong Kong. I thank you for the BNO scheme. And I would like to know um, whether, because uh, Friday is the 25th anniversary of of the SAR, and what would you say to the Hong Kong people who want to leave but they uh, but couldn't? And you're you're filming this, right? So, (laughs) well, you're you're on air, Chris. Okay, it's it's the most difficult question I get. I'm regularly asked. Um, For example, because of Oxford, I'm regularly asked by young Hong Kong students, and sometimes Chinese students, but Hong Kong students, whether they should go back to Hong Kong when they've got their (coughs) degrees. And it's a a very difficult question for me to answer. And I'm not sure I always convince myself of the answer. And it's particularly difficult for me because I'm not required to be as brave as, as, as they may have to be. I always say that the ideas which Hong Kong represents are going to survive longer than, the, than what uh, Chinese communist, communism represents. I make that point, and I talk about um, the, uh, in a sort of Nelson Mandela-ish way, about, about those things. But I'm not sure, you know in politics, when you can't really answer a question. And you have to admit it. But the other day, I was, I was, some of you may know Richmond Park, and there's a wonderful place called the Isabella Plantation, which mm. in, um, you know, at certain times of the year is full of the most magnificent azaleas I've seen since I was in Hong Kong. And I was walking in it a year or so back with, my, with our latest Norfolk Terrier. And a group of uh, young Chinese came up to me. And one of them said to me, uh, do you recognize me? So I sort of faffed around for a bit. 
um, gave, you know, tried to sound as though I did, but didn't. And he said, well, let me remind you, I came to one of your speeches in, in, uh, in the union in Oxford when you were speaking to all the Chinese and Hong Kong students. And you had your photograph taken with, with me holding a yellow umbrella. So I said, oh, of course, I've had lots of photographs taken with me. <laughs> So he said, uh, look, he said, I'm, I'm finishing my PhD in Oxford. He was working on, I think, diabetes. And they were all medical students. And he said um, he was with his girlfriend and his friend was with his girlfriend too. And he said, um, so when I finish, should I go back to Hong Kong? And I waffled away. And his girlfriend burst into tears. Uh, and that moved me quite a lot. Mm. It is always the case in politics that when you can't really give a good answer to a question, something's going wrong. And I couldn't give a good answer to that question. But I do strongly believe that the things that Hong Kong citizens believe in and hold on to I think those things are of enduring value. So glory to thee, Hong Kong. Give oil, right. Um, question in the front here. Now, you also mentioned Taiwan. And everybody in the world knows that the Taiwan right now is probably the next problem. Now, if, and only if, there's a war in Taiwan, how do you think it may affect Hong Kong? and how people in Hong Kong should prepare themselves for this? Well, if, if there was a war, if, the, um, if Beijing invaded Taiwan, it wouldn't just affect Hong Kong, it would affect uh, the whole world. It would be a disaster. Um, it would be a disaster because it would clobber the Chinese economy, it would clobber the regional economy. There would be military, direct military consequences, I guess, for... Hong Kong, because it's so near the, near the, it would be so near the war zone. But I repeat what I said earlier. Whatever my criticisms of Xi Jinping, and they are considerable, I cannot believe that the Chinese Communist Party would be so stupid as to do that. I think it's still more likely that they will go on trying to undercut Taiwan's will to survive. And it's very important that we, go and go, we continue to try to help build up Taiwan's self-confidence. Um, I wish we'd done it earlier in uh, Ukraine, but we are doing it now. But, um, for example, why don't we make a fuss about the fact that China stops um, Taiwan um, being part of the, of the uh, WHO mm. uh, conference? Um, not necessarily being a full member, but being part of the, of the annual conference. It's pathetic the way we allow ourselves to be pushed around in, in that sort of way. Do you think that's going to change, by the way, Chris? Do you think as a result of China's flirtation with Russia, I hope know, so. Western spinelessness I know, on that so. particular issue? You know, yeah. Taiwan has handled COVID really rather well. Yeah, and, and, and it was partly Taiwan which first blew the whistle on mm. what was happening in Wuhan. Yeah. Um, and we know perfectly well that whether or not um, the disease center in Wuhan had, had anything to do with the coronavirus. Nobody argues that the virus didn't start in China, in one of those wet markets, for example. Um, and nobody also argues, other than that, China broke the international health regulations by not reporting in yeah. a timely fashion what had actually happened um, with, that, with the beginning of that pan pandemic. And if we'd known and been able to work faster and earlier on the pandemic, a lot of lives and a lot of economies yeah. would have been saved. That, that, month, that one month of time lag yeah. basically cost millions of lives yeah. Yeah. around the world. Yeah, and there were those very, very brave Chinese doctors and mm. nurses, and particularly that very, brave, that very brave dentist who tried to blow the whistle. And what happened to them? They were shut up by the, by the police and, and uh, threatened, uh, they, unless they kept quiet, and they'd be put away. Um, we've started five minutes late. We've run five minutes over. Um, so we're going to wrap it up now. I just want to say 
So I was in Hong Kong a lot in 2019 for the demonstrations, which were truly impressive because of the scale, not so much the, the siege of the universities, but the actual scale of people coming out was magnificent. And that must have really scared the Chinese in Beijing because it was, those big demos were very peaceful and very well organized. And although there was a police presence, it was hardly necessary. But I remember two things, which will, one of them will amuse you maybe. The only other flag that was visible other than the Hong Kong flag was the Union Jack. And when you talk to these people, some, some people even seeing hope and glory, a land of hope and glory. And you then talk to them and you say, well, what, what's this all about? Do you want to be a you know, British colony again? So no, 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 you don't understand. We don't want to go back to Britain. But the, the Brits, and you in particular, it's the last chap we remember who did something for us, stood up for us. And that's, that, that was quite, that moved me, and it must move you even more. And then the final one was I was in the Polytechnic, which was a really quite a violent place for a couple of nights, and I spent the night there with the students, and they'd fashioned all these crossbows, and you know, they were, it was like a sort of medieval reenactment of how they were fighting the, uh, the Hong Kong police. And it was, it was quite violent, and they were shooting back with rubber bullets. And there was a young chap who was about to throw a Molotov cocktail, and he had a balaclava on, and I interviewed him for Channel 4 News. And he said, is this going to be shown in Hong Kong? I said, I don't think so. It's going to be shown in Britain. He said, that's just as well as he was throwing the Molotov cocktail. Because my mother thinks I'm having a sleepover with our, my best friend. And we're, and we're doing physics homework. <laughs> and that is, that sums it up. You know, the, all those kids doing homework in the first umbrella revolution. You know, yeah. in Occupy Hong Kong. For three months. Double chemistry every afternoon before Molotov cocktails. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I just want to say thank you, Chris, thank you. for this wonderful book. Thank you for tonight. This podcast starred Chris Patton and was presented by Matt Fry. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and our editor is John Doughty. The show is exec produced by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't heard it yet, Earlier this week, we released an interview with Tory leadership candidate Jeremy Hunt on his manifesto for renewing the NHS. It is well worth your time. Until next week, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.